You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We'll begin in Genesis 18. We'll get there in just a moment. Um, and uh, like I, you know, last week we, we started what I'm calling, I mean, well, just a series on worship, um, a study on the subject of biblical worship. And it may feel a little bit different as we go through this. It might actually feel a little bit like a Bible study uh, more uh, than it would uh, preaching, although um, I can't help it if a little preaching comes out because sometimes that happens. Um, and yet, I do want this to be a more of an in-depth look, uh, more of a topical look is what it's going to be, and, and yet I think there's real value in those kinds of studies as well. I mean, Eastside Baptist Church, at least for my preaching style, um, I, you know, we're, our foundation is expository preaching, and yet we need these kind of, of studies at times to kind of clarify some things for us. Much of this material is adapted from a book by uh, Dave Hardy, which would be Brother Samuel's grandfather worship and the ear of God is what he calls it and uh, it's about the the definition of true biblical worship and what it means and why it's primarily honestly absent in uh, our society so many people claim to have worship and they even call their services worship Um, but really where is it it's like the old Wendy's commercial where's the beef you know, they're looking for it on this, on this hamburger bun, and yet there's no beef to be found. And, and honestly, that, that's very similar. To, I mean, that would be a, a, an appropriate thing to say um, regarding worship in our culture. Where's the worship? Uh, where could we, I mean, can we really find real worship somewhere? Um, it may not be as common as you think it is. Uh, I remember uh, I was showing Brother Samuel today a video of a church in in California and they're very big on miracles this church is they're very big on uh I mean just things that you can't explain and and it's a more of a Pentecostal type uh church background and and so in the middle of this service these people are singing and these things are happening and then suddenly you look up into into the the top of the building and you know everything in the in a lot of modern churches everything's all black you know but you look up and you see these lights shining, and then suddenly you see these flecks of gold dust start to come down. Gold glitter, they call it. It's coming down from the ceiling, and, and everyone's looking at it, and they're, they're really pumped up about what they're seeing. And, and the pastor is up there and, you know, talking about how, um, you know, we, don't, we can't explain it either. We just know it's happening. And, you know, this is the presence of God, and the Old Testament talks about God coming in a cloud, and this... Gold glitter dust is the presence of God coming out of the ceiling. And, and you're watching it like, what in the world is happening? And, and, you know, they're saying that's worship. They say that that gold dust coming out of the ceiling is, is representative of God's presence. And, I mean, I, I've, if I didn't know any better, I might look at it and say, well, that's a miracle. Except the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. And nor do you see in any New Testament church service gold glitter dust coming out of the ceiling. So my question would be, I mean, are they more in touch with God than the Apostle Paul? Because it didn't really seem to happen to him, for him that way. 
You start to question those things. And obviously, our, in, in our church, in our mindset, if it, the Bible is all we need to have the revelation of God. And honestly, if you come with a mindset to seek God, all you really need is His Word. Uh, signs are for the unbelieving. And, and we don't need signs to prove God is real. We have His Word to prove that He is real. And, and so that just reminded me today about all the countless ideas of worship out there that may not be accurate. There, was mindset, there were mindsets in the scripture that weren't accurate. You think about the woman at the well in John 4, which is where we started last week. And she comes, she's a Samaritan woman, and she comes and says, we, we worship on Mount Gerizim, and yet you worship in Jerusalem. Which place is right? Who's right? And Jesus said, essentially his response was, I'm about to do something. I'm about to tear down that partition between God and man in such a way that worship can take place with, between you and God anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a certain location. And you don't have to do the certain rituals. You can have access to God on your own, a personal relationship with him. If you will come and seek God, you can worship him. And those are the kinds of worshipers he's looking for. I mean, what a blessing that, that God allows me and God allows you to worship him personally. Biblical worship begins with a person that desires to seek God. That is the number one uh, qualification for worship. It's not just about attending church, although I believe you should worship at church. It's not just going through liturgical motions. It's truly in your heart seeking God, not for what he can do and not for answered prayers necessarily, but just seeking him. I mean, can you imagine as a mom or a dad, if your children ever, only ever came to you when they need something? And that wouldn't be a very fulfilling or satisfying relationship. We need, uh, we, we ought times, plenty of times every day, uh, ought to be willing to come to God seeking him, not for what he can give us, but just because of who he is. Just because, I mean, who else would you want to know more closely and, and better than the God of the universe who also just happened to, to send his son to die on the cross for your sins? James 4 says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And last week, we, we talked about if there was a mirror right here. If you're looking in a mirror and you take a step away, your reflection takes a step away from you. But if you take a step toward yourself in the mirror, your, your reflection comes towards you. And in many ways, that is what's happening when, in our relationship with God. God gives us the grace to, to know that we have a need for him... And then he waits for us to take a step toward him. And when we draw nigh to him, the Bible says he draws nigh to us. And, a, and when we take a step of proximity, uh, or sorry, when we take a step of humility, God takes a step of proximity. He is looking for us in a humble way to seek him. And when we do, he gets closer. The Bible says in Isaiah 57, For thus saith the high and lofty one, one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, he says, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. 
You know, the, that verse says the qualification God is looking for to have proximity with him is not position, it's not talent, it's not leadership, it's not duration of your Christianity, it's not if you were raised in a Christian home. What God is looking for to draw close to you is a humble heart. You don't have to have all the Christian experience in the world. You simply need humility. God responds to our humility with proximity. He wants to be around those that are humble. Abraham built an altar every place he could. It's no accident also then that James 2 says the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. The Bible calls the man that worshipped him, that worshipped God over and over and over calls him the friend of God. Abraham was a humble man before God and God said that's my friend. I'd love to be known as God's friend. It takes humility God is drawn to those who humbly seek him. Another great point that we, and we're just reviewing some things from last week about worship is that it's available to any of us, no matter our past. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't require for you to have a clean slate and, and, and a perfect past? Now, he can clean your slate, but he doesn't require you to be perfect to come to him. You can worship him. I mean, Abraham was not a perfect man, and yet he was God's friend because he constantly sought God through worship. Last, last week, we referred to the story about a woman from Canaan, Matthew 15, and she came to God begging God to heal her daughter who was possessed of a devil. Now, understand, I said she's a Canaanite woman. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't even a Samaritan. She was in the Jews' eyes. She was the lowest of the low. She was a Canaanite. She was a Gentile. She had no right to come and approach Jesus Christ. And yet the, the Bible says in verse 25 of Matthew 15 that she came and worshipped. And Christ's response was, O woman, great is thy faith. And she went home and her daughter was healed. See, God seeks worshipers. No matter your past, no matter your standing in life, if you recognize God's worth and you simply come seeking him for who he is, he responds to your steps of humility with proximity. And it's clear that any child of God that desires a, a close relationship with God should regularly engage in biblical worship. That should be a common practice of God's children. So then the question though arises, and the question I want to look at tonight, short, just in a, I'm not, it won't be long, just a few minutes tonight, but what is worship? What is worship? Well, worship can be kind of confusing. So, I mean, first, people worship all kinds of things, don't they? I mean, you say we use that now. Uh, they worship money, they worship cars. They worship social status. I, uh, they worship, it's a, if they worship a person they admire, I saw even just this week, um, and, and I, don't, I don't know the story, I don't even know what it's about, the song, but, but a, a famous pop star um, was, was supposed to perform at the Grammys, and, and, and something about, uh, I don't even really fully understand it, uh, but what, he's, what he was saying was something got ready to perform and I'm going to come and, and, and apparently there's some elements of sat satanic worship or something like that. I didn't want to watch it. And yet, um, and CBS tweeted in response and says, we're ready to worship. I'm going to be on stage at this show and, and here's a major network, network saying we're ready to worship. Like that's, that's the mentality of worship in our culture. 
You're going to worship a famous pop star um, who's probably living a wicked lifestyle. You're going to worship an athlete who the only thing about them they can do is they're athletic and there's no, maybe even in many of them, there may be a, a, a no moral character and yet, you know, we lift them up. Worship is, is sports figures or, or just famous people or somebody that, that on social media that's famous. And, or maybe it's themselves. You know, people worship, we worship ourselves. We lift ourselves up and we put ourselves on a pedestal. So first of all, worship is hard because it's confusing. You know, people worship everything. But second, it's also difficult um, because sometimes it's hard to nail down exactly what worship is. And if mankind tends to worship the wrong things, then you can guarantee that his definition of worship is wrong. And I would submit to you um, that true biblical worship is perhaps maybe the most understood and misapplied practice in Christianity today. Here's a simple definition of worship. Worship is the voluntary humbling of one person, physically and spiritually, in order to exalt another. And, and you don't, I mean, we're not going to necessarily work with that definition uh, a lot tonight, but it's the voluntary humbling of one person physically and spiritually in order to exalt another. So if you look at, if you think about that definition, that's not necessarily uh, just specific to God. It's just talking about the idea of worship in general. That definition is not exhaustive. It's not exclusive to all kinds of other ideas claiming to be worship. But unlike words used maybe only once or, or sparingly in the Old Testament or the New Testament, a worship is used often. So in other words, you know, sometimes when we say, well, the Bible doesn't give you a lot of direction. It only uses this word a couple of times. So you have to fill in the gaps and you may not really fully understand it. The Bible uses worship often. It's a word you'll see a lot and it, it speaks well for itself. If you study the Bible word for worship, the ideas of bowing and kneeling and humbling yourself make up the primary meaning of the word worship. And that definition of the word, it seems to get lost when you study broader definitions of the word worship. And, and you may be able to add some things to the definition of worship, but you cannot subtract the idea of humbling oneself and accurately continue to define the word worship. You can't do it. Since, since the word doesn't speak for itself then, I just want to listen to it tonight. I want you to, we're going to look at some verses beginning here in Genesis 18 and answer the question, what is worship? What does the Bible say worship is? Now, note the, vo the vocabulary for worship in the Bible is extensive, but the essential concept in the Bible is service. Originally, uh, the labor of slaves or hired servants. That's, that's where the idea for worship comes from. So in order then to then translate and, and offer worship to God, his servants then, the idea is that a servant prostrates himself. That a servant humbles himself face down before the one that they are trying to exalt, thus manifesting reverential fear and adoring awe and wonder. That's the concept. The first mention of the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is shakha, which is 
the Hebrew word for worship, it's found in Genesis 18. Look at verse 1 and 2. And get ready, we're going to turn to a few different places tonight. Genesis 18, verse 1, it says, And the Lord appeared unto him, this is Abraham, the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door. And what are the next two words? And what? Bowed himself toward the ground. That's that Hebrew word for bowed or bowed himself is shachah. Abraham bowed himself toward the ground before those three angels, those messengers from God that came to announce that Sarah would have a son. And notice the first translation, the very first time that this word shachah is used in the Old Testament, translated into English here, it's not translated worship. It's translated bowed. And if you know anything about Bible interpretation, then the law of first mention is significant. And when, when, there's a, when the word is used for the very first time in Scripture, then you know that we can take our cue from that first mention in the Bible to say, okay, this is mentioning a concept that all other, all other mentions of this word, we should refer back to this very first mention. And so that means that when you're thinking of the word worship, shaka in Hebrew, any other time that you think or see that word in the Old Testament, you shouldn't just think generally of worship, you should think of the word bow. Because that's how this term is translated the very first time. Look at Genesis chapter 22 in verse 5. Genesis 22 is the second time that this word shakah is used in the scripture. This is when Isaac is going to be, Abraham is going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Genesis 22 verse 5. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and, what's the word? Worship and come again to you. Same exact word as you see over in Genesis 18, which is bowed. Okay, So this act of bowing down in reverence was usually done before a superior or before a ruler. I mean, Abraham saw these men. He knew they weren't normal men. They were messengers. They were angels. And he knew there was something different about them. He bowed. And, and we know that he was going up to the mountain. He was going to worship God, somebody that is his superior. He was going to bow. I mean, turn over to Genesis 37. Genesis 37 and this is the passage that is uh, when we first are introduced to Joseph, which we've been looking at for the last few months. And uh, Joseph chapter 37, I'm sorry, Genesis 37, verse 5, not Joseph 37. It says in verse 5, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? They knew what the word. Now, that word obeisance, it's the same word, shakah, which is translated bow. It's translated worship. Here it's translated obeisance. It's from the same Hebrew word. They knew when he said shakah that he was saying, I will be up and you will be down. And they said, are you, seriously, you're our little brother. You think you're going to reign over us? Shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. He talks about shakah, obeisance, worship, uh, bowing. It's all the same word. 
Uh, we could look at First uh, Samuel 24. Don't, look, don't turn there. Uh, and, and we know that when Saul went into the cave and David and his men were hiding in the cave there and David stayed his men and said, don't touch them, touch not the Lord's anointed. Um, that when Saul came out of the cave and David followed him out from afar off, he shouted and said, I could have slain you, uh, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And then, it, and then he, it's, the Bible says that he bowed. He bowed, he shakad. And he worshipped, not because um, Saul was a, a perfect deity, but because Saul was king. He was David's superior. And he didn't have to worship Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And yet, because out of respect for the position, David worshipped. I mean, turn over to Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. So this will be our last, maybe our last Old Testament reference. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. This is when uh, Ruth is gleaning in the field and, and Boaz, she comes across Boaz and and uh, it says in verse 10, then she fell on her face and bowed herself, verse 10, to the ground and said unto him, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me seeing I'm a stranger? But that word in verse 10, then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. So I'm bringing these up um, because it's not like the word worship only, only is ever applied to somebody's relationship to God. It is less about a, a religious act and more about a physical act. Yeah. I mean, if you're simply looking at the Bible definition of worship, it's a physical act. Yeah. Now, we know it's more than a physical act when you're worshiping God because he's looking for worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. But it's hard to define the word worship without thinking about bowing. That's the point. The meaning is to be brought low in the sense of being humbled before somebody else. And if we go to the New Testament, turn over to Matthew 2. Uh, we make the transition then from Hebrew, uh, which is uh, the source of our Old Testament, uh, to the, the language of Greek, which is the source of our New Testament. And the Greek word for uh, worship is proskuneo. And that's used 60 times in the New Testament. So it's not like the Bible doesn't have anything to say about bowing. It doesn't have, it's not like it has, doesn't have much to say about worship. You don't, it's not saying you get to fill in the blanks. Worship can be whatever you want it to be. No, um, it's used 60 times. And according to uh, one Greek um, English lexicon, the word which was used to describe um, or, or bowing or worship is used, um, it says it, it talks about the custom of prostrating oneself before a person and kissing their feet or kissing the hem of their garment or kissing the ground around their feet. Now, aren't you glad that our customs are different? I mean, for some of you, feet are, are I mean, that's a no-go, right? I mean, well, feet played a part in their culture. When you walked into a house and wearing minimal shoes, you took your shoes off and sat down and, and they would wash your feet. A good host would wash your feet. I mean, be thankful for that, that we don't have to do that anymore. But that's the idea. It's a humbling yourself before somebody else. Strong's Concordance adds that it is like a dog's affectionate licking of his master's hand. You say, well, I, I'm, I'm no dog. I don't do that kind of stuff. You know, 
I don't have to humble myself before anybody. Well, I think that may be part of the reason that we don't like the definition of worship. Because we're Americans and we say, don't tread on me. And our culture is not big on bowing. I mean, we can go to Great Britain and, and bowing's a part of their, of their culture. You go to Eastern cultures and, and when you see somebody, you bow. That's part of it. I'm not Americans. And yet, when you find what the Bible says about the word worship, it, it very often is about bowing. Matthew 2, verse 2, look what it says, the Magi visiting Jesus. And they come, verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Bow. John 4, look over there. We're gonna, just a couple more in the New Testament here. We read this last week. Uh, and so you, you're familiar from last week. Uh, this word comes up a lot in Verse 20, John chapter 4, verse 20. This is the woman in, at the well, and she perceives he's a prophet. John 4, 20, our fathers worshipped. There's the word, proskuneo, in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship proskuneo, proskuneo, proskuneo the Father in truth, spirit and in truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we say okay we know what worship is worship is when you come before God and you sing praises to God and lifting up his, his name that's not a bad thing but, no, but, but let's compare words Revelation chapter 7 verse 11 Revelation 7.11, look, look over there. Your Bibles are getting a workout today. Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels, I'll read it. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces. And worshipped God. I mean, do you, are you starting to see the connection? See, biblical worship is one thing. We often think, well, our definition of worship is what culture says. Or what the dictionary says. But I think it's probably a good idea for Bible believers to go first to God's word and find out what God's word says. The English word worship is actually very expressive of the act that it describes. But because there's a cultural difference between uh, the Eng England when the King James Bible was, was written in 1611 and, and in America today, it would do us good to revisit the word. See, this is a case where digging into the definition or understanding uh, where the word came from it can add a lot of understanding for us. The word worship comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that is worthship, later modified to worthship, and finally, worship, which means to attribute worth to somebody. So think about it. When you hear the word worship, you, are th you should think worthship, meaning I am going to do my best in this moment to ascribe worth to whoever it is that I'm 
worshiping, to, astri- to attribute worth to something or someone. See, understanding the difference between the English and biblical terms, um, Baker's Dictionary of Theology states this, our English word means worth-ship, denoting the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. In other words, because of who they are, they have special worth. And then, and so the principal biblical terms, the Hebrew shacha and the Greek proskuneo, emphasize the act of prostration, the doing of obeisance. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe Christians don't equate the act of bowing with worship. But when you study the Bible and what it has to say about worship, you realize that that's a significant part of the definition. And still, we might think, well, maybe it's, I think it's overkill or it's unnecessary to bow. It's not part of our, our thought process. But whose definition are we allowing to shape our thinking about worship? I mean, if culture, that's what our culture says, where Americans don't tread on me, I don't have to bow before anybody because I'm American. And so we're, we're kind of maybe a little bit resistant to the idea of bowing. I mean, on Wednesday nights, part of my reason um, a couple of years ago to change from just sitting to bowing when we pray is so that is for this moment. Because I, I didn't want us to be um, so unaccustomed to the physical act that we're resistant to it. But understand that worship, that physical act of bowing is a sign of worship to the one true God. And it would only seem right for the one whom we worship then to define our worship. How we do it, he should get to be the one. And he has many times over. The definitions of the word worship in Hebrew and Greek, they contain a greater detail than the word in English. And it's these definitions that should frame our thinking. Now, let me be careful because sometimes you might take that kind of a, a statement wrong as a side note, or maybe not as a side note, as a foundational um, key point tonight. I'm not saying that the Hebrew or Greek corrects the English. We have confidence in God's preserved word. This is God's word in English, and we believe that. So when we go into Greek or we go into Hebrew, we're not using it to correct the translation we have because we believe God's preserved it, but it, it, may, it doesn't correct it, but it can give us a greater depth of understanding when we go into it. And so in the same way that if you're reading Shakespeare, would you need a dictionary for some words? Absolutely. If you're reading a hard passage um, in, in, in a, what somebody has written or a book or a, a textbook, you might need a, a dictionary. We don't begrudge that. In the same way, the Greek or the Hebrew can help us maybe add some color or insight to certain words. And it does that in this case here about worship. I, I mean, I recommend everybody has a concordance handy while you're reading your Bible. Uh, because if you don't understand what a word means, then you keep reading. You're not going to understand the rest of that verse or passage if you don't get a certain word. It clarifies some things for us. So when you look up the Old Testament word for worship, it indicates a bowing. And, a good, and, and the Old Testament, for a good while, was the only Bible available to the New Testament Christians. It was what they had written, so it shaped their thinking about worship. So here's maybe we should start, then that's the Bible definition, but I just want to just go into for a minute what the word worship doesn't mean. See, sometimes it's helpful to define what a word does not mean in order to 
clarify it. For a moment, maybe resist the tendency to read back into the word your own personal idea of worship. It does not primarily mean to sit reverently in your pew. Now, you can. I, I believe you can have a spirit of worship, um, but at its most biblical definition, worship is not sitting reverently, although that's an admirable thing to do. I believe that reverence of any kind is getting hard to come by in churches, which is why I would encourage you, you know, sometimes we have a lot of movement in our services. Um, parents, uh, teach your children to go to the bathroom before the service begins. And if, no, if for no other reason, um, you're teaching them that while we're meeting with God, he is worthy of our worship and he should be reverenced. And sometimes I get a little concerned with how much movement goes on and how, how, maybe how casual we are about walking in and out of services. Uh, not because of me. It's not about me. We are meeting with the God of heaven and he is worthy of our undivided attention. So be mindful of that. There should be a little bit more, I believe, reverence in our services when we meet with God. It also doesn't primarily mean to just bow your head, although bowing one's head could be part of the worship experience. It does not primarily mean to come forward and pray. Prayer can be a part of worship, but if prayer is confined to asking, then that may not be worship. See, simply speaking, prayer is mostly asking God to do something for you. Maybe you're asking God to do something for another person. Maybe you're asking God to do some, a great work in a situation. All of that is good and it's not practiced enough. And we ought to seek God in prayer. But I still believe that falls short of what the word worship means. It does not primarily mean to stand and raise your hands toward God. Now, if, when you think of our modern culture's definition of worship, if you could do that in, in one physical act, in modern worship, here's how we in our culture would define worship. Like this, right here. You have to do the sway, too, you know. <laughs> right? That's worship. I'm, I'm not downing that. I mean, we don't necessarily, I mean, a good hand raising around here, that's okay. You can raise a hand. Um, well, you'll have to get permission to raise both. But, you know, raising one, that's okay. Now, raise, raising both hands like this. That, if you were to ask the average Christian on the street to define worship in one physical act, that's what they would do. But do you see that in the Bible? If we're going to allow the Bible to define our idea of what worship is, the definition of worship... Worship is a lot less this and a lot more this right here on my face. And, and we have to be careful, again, to allow culture to define how we view something as key and fundamental to the Christian life as worship. And, and, I, and again, I am not in any way criticizing what somebody else does. I'm simply saying, you would say this too. If we were to say this one act, this is what they would say is worship. But according to the Bible, it's actually the opposite. You know, prayer and praise, oh, those are good things. They, attributing worth to God, those are good things. But they are not necessarily worship. And so falling short of falling down before God, then I think we have an issue... If, if falling before God on our faces is not part of the worship experience, then is worship happening? 
You know, the fact that so few Christians kneel in worship on Sunday, maybe during a service even labeled as worship, I mean, maybe we don't fully understand the primary application of the word. Maybe it's, it's not so much a lack of understanding, but maybe a lack of, of, of accepting because that's a humbling thing to do and that's, that's not a comfortable thing to do and it's not part of our culture. But maybe like it is with other Bible truths, there's a breakdown between knowing the truth and practicing the truth. That is something that you find in God's word quite a bit. At the risk of sounding offensive, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to just give you definitions here tonight. Worship means to get on your face and that's an unpopular image. It's not, it's not something that we enjoy. It's not something we're used to. It's one thing to have an element of worship in our services and in our lives, but to maybe live our lives as Christian and miss out on true biblical worship, I believe it's to rob God of something that he deserves and requires. The primary meaning deals with a bowing of the knee, a physical form of humbling done in spirit and in truth. So I just wonder, I mean, if you imagine God viewing our church services from heaven, and on the average Sunday, he doesn't, maybe he, just for this service, he doesn't hear what's going on. He just chooses to not hear anything. He's simply watching us. And the Bible says in John 4 that he seeks worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so if God just kind of removed the seal, and I may use this illustration more um, on a weekly basis, but if God removes the roof from Eastside Baptist Church and he looks down on our services and he's waiting, okay, and I'm not necessarily hearing what they're saying, but I'm just waiting for the act of worship. I'm waiting to see it. So, you know, the, the service begins, we go through it, they're standing, they're sitting, there's a bowing of heads, we, we sit, you know, some raise their hands, we get excited and, you know, move their mouths like they're saying amen. You come down to the end of the service and, uh, you know, and, and at the end of the service, remember, he's looking for the physical act of worship. He's looking for what looks like worship. And at the end of the service, if there are 200 people in here on a Sunday morning and five at the end of the service, bow. And then he's saying, oh, okay, there it is. But, I mean, that's a pretty small percentage. And I was kind of looking, hoping for more if I'm looking for worshipers in, true, in spirit and in truth. And yet the percentage ends up being very small. And of those that came, you could probably imagine that in response to the preaching, they're not just worshiping, they're, they're asking for something. So where is the worship? And I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that worship can only take place on Sundays. You know, I think sometimes we get in the habit of, well, I can pray and I can really seek God and have my time with him while I'm driving to work. Where's the worship? You know, is that the definition of worship? And by the way, I don't recommend that you worship while you're driving. <laughs> Bowing, by the way. You know, when we record these, uh, you know, if you look at the recorded scriptures, you know, in Matthew 4, even Satan, let's look there and then we'll, we'll be done. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And this is while, when Satan was trying to tempt Jesus. In verse 9, Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. 
You know, when they, the devil takes him up to a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms. And verse 9, it says, And saith unto him, saith unto Jesus, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. You know, it, it's interesting that even Satan has a clear understanding of worship. And he demanded of our Savior, All these things will I give you if thou wilt bow down and worship me. So shall we do less for our Savior than what those who worship, I mean, if, if, those, if there are those that worship Satan, I mean, that's his idea of worship. And should we do less than that? So I, I just want you to consider tonight that you take time this week to even do your own study for yourself and count the times in the scripture. I mean, maybe the word bow or humble or prostrate or worship are mentioned and note how often while you, we see those words, how often the idea of on your face is. Bowing, worshiping, humbling. You know, this is not meant to, uh, to be a dart, you know, an arrow. I'm not shooting arrows. I'm just trying to get us to think biblically about something that we literally say, this is a worship service. And if we're going to have a worship service, should we not worship? And are we worshiping? I'm not sure exactly where even I land on all of this in practice. But one thing I do know is if I understand that this is a Bible definition of the word worship, then, then that, that's going to change the way that I, on a daily basis, seek the Lord. And I think for myself to start that, that I, I think that God would have me on my face before him. As not, not simply as a liturgical act or a physical act that doesn't mean anything. No, in spirit and in truth. Meaning that it's real, it's genuine. And, and it's not just a physical act. But I do believe in heaven, according to Revelation 7, when we worship, we're going to be falling on our faces. So why not then fall on our faces before him now? If that's his idea of worship, I'm okay with it letting him define what worship looks like for me. Would you be willing to consider that, to study that, to think about that? And as a church, then maybe we decide how to move forward with the act of worship. Something to think about as we continue our series on Wednesday nights. Let's, let's stand together. We'll have a time of, of bowing here or, or responding here to the word and however God has maybe spoken to you about it, I, maybe we go back to the question last week, are, are you treating services as a time to, to seek God? Or is it simply just motions? Are you seeking a relationship with him? And then second, if, 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 the, if the definition of worship, are you allowing the culture or your own thoughts and philosophies about it, are you letting those things define how you view worship, or are we, as a Bible-believing church, going to allow God's word to define what worship is for us? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.